and welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. Hazel, we're two people who studied archaeology together and love history. And um, today we are joined by our lovely producer and also my spouse, Nick Blake. Hello. Um, this is really exciting. I, I, I like podcasts with Nick. Yeah, if you if you listen to the other podcasts that I do, you will have heard them as mod not paper on probably bad RPG ideas. <laughs> um, so here's what have you been making and or baking? Oh, um, I probably have one of each actually. I made hot crust buns the other day. Oh, nice was really fun um I've been getting back into bread big time at the moment it's so it's so soothing just like kneading and forcefully kneading and punching the dough it's, it is, it's great it is a spiritual experience isn't it much yeah I found some very old raisins so I hope they're okay but I mean I haven't um expired yet um and Mary Berry's recipe is a uh, Pretty good, I have to say. I think I've heard of Mary Berry, yeah. Of, oh yeah, Mary Berry of Bake Off fame. Yeah, so I've been doing that. And I'm crocheting this gigantic lacy thing. Um, you do lean towards the gigantic lacy thing. I do, yeah. I have a kind of a thing for massive projects, which doesn't go well with my tendency to not finish things. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's fun, it's absorbing. Um yeah, what about you? Um so about a week ago from time of recording or about three weeks from when this episode will go up um mm -hmm. it was our first anniversary yeah so we made a so for our wedding i made um with nick's help but largely i made um a three-tier raspberry and white chocolate cake oh my goodness um <gasps> Which you probably remember. Yeah, is it the, the same one that was your wedding cake? Yeah. Yeah, I can confirm it was delicious. Um, so for our anniversary, I just made like a little two-person raspberry and white chocolate cake. Because marriage is a cake you bake together. It is. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I was I was hoping you'd you'd cringe at that, but no, we're being sincere. This is mixing this up. The other podcast is the bad one. This one's sincere. Yeah, this is an irony irony free zone. But I also this is the whole for Mary Nick. But I'm also very excited because ages ago I went to Affleck's Palace in Manchester, and they have this little like creation space. And one of the things they had was a reversible crochet chameleon. Oh yeah, I think I think I've seen that. And I have obtained the book that that pattern is from, 
is Crushing Wild Animals by Vanessa Moonsee. I'm very excited to make this chameleon. Technically not something I've made, because the book arrived at the house four hours ago, but I'm very excited. Gosh, that is that is news of epic proportions. I, I will... I mean, I will probably be doing progress pictures on my Instagram, and when it is eventually finished, I will, I will tweet. Do you want to maybe explain what Affleck's Palace is? No. Okay. I mean, it's it's basically it's like this three-story, no, four four floors. Yeah. Because it goes up to the third floor. Four floors. Maybe more. Like I don't know. Independent shops of varying levels of weirdness. In the hipster mm-hmm. part of Manchester. It's like an independent department store, yeah. But with very alternative booths. And also a, just this one space that's just for being creative in, which is quite fun. Yeah. And very northern quarter, which is the part of Manchester. It's like the department store in Carroll, except with more lesbians and fewer Santa hats. <laughs> that's not an accurate description. So Nick, do you want to explain why we brought you in today? Okay, well, because I make really bad life decisions, I have a master's degree in medieval and early modern studies, and one of the things being discussed today is a medieval thing. So that is one half of what I'm qualified to talk about. The other half being punctuation, I'm not going to get into that. No, we're not going to get into that. Basically, um, talk a bit louder. Yeah, because we're going to be discussing the form of Curie, which may have come up in previous episodes in passing. Is that how you pronounce it? I always wonder. Yeah, it's spelled like curry with one R, but it is pronounced Curie. I've been saying curry for like years. Well, um, as it's does it contain anything curry related? Not especially. There's, oh. you know, there's odd, odd spices and things like that, but nothing much more um, potent, I'd say, than maybe some cinnamon or nutmeg. I don't know. They've got pepper. Yes, just so if think peppery and aromatic over spicy, and you're about there. I'm very disappointed now. to report that I cannot find a. a cookbook names of the form of curry. That is a shame. Now, like I, like I said, I've got uh, got background in looking at medieval things, specifically medieval manuscripts, and this is a manuscript about cooking, which I'm qualified to talk about due to having a mouth. So I'm feeling very confident about this. <laughs> I think this is going to be great. I mean, I've already learned how to properly pronounce it. <laughs> So <laughs> I'm excited for more facts. So I don't know how frequent this is going to be in, in terms of having Nick, but we're planning to basically do an episode on a person or a book or something like that every fifth episode. So I'll be, I'll be popping up if I have anything of note to say about things. Otherwise, I just kind of gesture in the background while things are recording. I need to be editing and the music. Yeah, so are quite important. I also do. Don't sell yourself short. And most of the transcripts. Also that. Um, so what what is 
apart from being medieval, which is a very vague word when you think about it, um, covering approximately a thousand years in Western Europe. Yes. What What is the form of Curie? The form of Curie is a cookbook written by the chef of Richard II. Um, basically. So we're talking. Fourteenth. Yeah, fourteenth century. Um, and it it probably runs the gamut. There's some there's some basic dishes. There's fancier stuff. Um, basically everything you need to prepare that classic high medieval banquet. Um, often, often depicted depicted in period shows as people just grabbing and biting big legs of meat. So it's the night's tale party. It's the night's tale party. Yes, um, it can it includes instructions on making pies and cakes and constructing a rudimentary heath ledger. <laughs> <laughs> Was Richard the Second known for being a particularly extravagant king? I think I remember that. Well, um, I, I believe so. I mean, he was like Richard twice. Um, <laughs> the popular, what one thing that really cemented the popular perception of him was, I think, um, Richard the Second, the play by, by Shakespeare, which is a lot less covered, I think, than Richard the Third, which has better lines and far more interesting stuff going on. But yeah, but if was... we're not talking to the propaganda. He was the king during the Peasants' Revolt. Yes. It's probably his yeah. actual main thing. Yeah, there was the there was a lot of um controversies as well over his local um local taxation. There was a there was a lot of money flowing from uh, smaller settlements into um into the king's coffers, which is probably part of why the peasants were pretty unhappy their money was being spent on pies yeah a combination of pies and plague pretty much <laughs> yeah it's um so it's it's interesting it's a very very much a um a mask of the red death situation here um of a you know of a very rich and powerful person um having wonderful wonderful meals and everything and big banquets while things are going south elsewhere. Um, but the main thing that I found interesting when I was looking into this is um, I looked up a digitised copy of the manuscript um, on Luna, which is a public, publicly available um, resource um, provided by the University of Manchester where you can properly Look at manuscripts of detail. It's in the John Rylands Library, which is one of my favourite buildings. It's an amazing neo Gothic building. Nick got to study in it, and I'm so jealous. It was very good. Ah, forever jealous. The John Rylands is fantastic. This beautiful Gothic, like, public library that is also full of, well, I used to just go and. I used to just go and waft around in there, like, trying to be a Victorian scholar. It's very good for that. There's, um, you know, a lot of it is open to the public. There's, you know, it's got uh, some small exhibitions, things on display. You can go to the reading room and 
just yeah, do a bit of quiet studying. To this, look up a picture of the John Rylands Library reading room. It will blow your mind. It absolutely yeah. will. The ceiling is so good that sometimes when you go there, you can get because um, the ceiling is worth gawping at. They don't want you to uh, to strain your neck too much though, so you can get a special mirror for so you can look at it without just craning upwards, which I think is lovely. <laughs> but anyway, um, in the digitized copy, I saw um, this comment in the margins where it's mentioned a date for this um, book, it was June 1374, and then a note that it was about 234 years ago. So that gives us, um, that gives us a point where, um, yeah, this gives us a point where we can say two, 200 years later and, and some change, people were still looking at it, people, at least one person found it worthwhile. So it's not just a question of we think it's important because it survived, it's we know people were using it. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting to, to speculate about this, this new owner. What's interesting is, so around, I think, yeah, 1600, uh, you'd have somebody looked at this book and it's quite possible that some of the stuff that, that back then would have been fancier and just for the, the chef and Richard II to prepare, it might have been something that maybe not somebody just ordinary middle class would have made, but somebody who was, you know, upper middle. This could have been a lawyer or someone just who managed to find a copy and who went, okay, I'll, I'll try some of these out. I'll be able to have access to these ingredients because the world is such a different place to before. So it's really cool to think that these recipes were just still being used and gone back to um, even hundreds of years ago, which would that make this one of the oldest sort of continually used cookbooks? It's quite possible. Yeah, because um, I think Apicius that we mentioned before is, like I said, like I said at the time, is like the second oldest cookbook guide to recipes, whatever you want to call it. But also oh. fell out of use because of the whole fall of the Roman Empire thing. Yeah, <laughs> that'll do it. And we know the Babylonian one wasn't because we forgot how to read um, cuneiform for a bit. Yeah, not all. I still haven't yeah, remembered. Yeah, that that's one big big barrier, and um, it really it really feels like when Rome fell, eating dormouse went out the window. What language is the form of curry written in? Um, it's Middle English, is it? Yeah, it's sort of Middle English. Chaucer English. Yeah, basically, the way I think of it is Middle English. Is understandable for most people most of the time if you, I guess, if you squint a little. Or I, f I found a way of of um, understanding it easily is to read it out loud. Then you kind of find yourself just sounding like you're speaking English with a very strange accent, and then it starts. Which to... I'm going to do anyway, being from the West Coast. <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah. 
Um, yeah, it's one of those things where, like, it's Middle English is like Welsh. Mm. You look at it, and it's a little bit confusing, and then you realise it's pretty easy to actually say the words, and then you get it. Yeah, abs- absolutely. One interesting thing is um, because between the 1370s and 1600, you you have two different kinds of English, but they are mutually intelligible. Conveniently, you go from Chaucer to Shakespeare. Yeah, you go Chaucer to Shakespeare. It's like a English survey course. Um, <laughs> and this this person would have been able to read it with relative ease and still be able to um, still be able to cook a lot of the stuff. I mean, we can't. We have to see. Took it and just wrote down the recipes they liked in their version of English. This must have happened. It must have happened. There's there's a good chance. I feel um, this is the kind of thing where a lot of the time you are going to get people people copying it um, in various forms, and copying bits of it in various forms, which is just how books were transmitted before the printing. Is it possible that any of these recipes have just kind of diffused out into becoming traditional recipes, or is it the other way around? Well, there's there's an interesting example, a meal that we both particularly like that is mentioned in the form of curry, which is less less a meal enjoyed now, but one used in a in a popular phrase, uh, humble pie. Which I think. Ah. He's- had at my birthday a couple of years ago we yes pie. yes we yeah. did um, so yeah i remember that it was I, quite good you... yeah so basically at this time the word humble or humble basically referred to like general awful mm. like you'd have recipes talking about things like fish humbles and chicken humbles and all these things but this is specifically venison. Yeah. This is the stuff that you give the servants after they've helped you hunt the deer and you eat the good stuff. Okay. Although there are later recipes that make a very fancy humble pie with, like, cloves and stuff. I think there's one from Castle Howard. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, one one thing I find fun is in the form of fury, there's... it. Like this could just be a kind of spelling error, but I believe it says numbles. Numbles is yeah. Which to me Which is is again the same stuff. Yeah. That sounds umbles, like a nickname you like numbles. That sounds like a nickname you might give your cat. To me it sounds like when when a celebrity manages to easily get a, a children's book deal and they put out this substandard picture thing, <laughs> meet the numbles. <laughs> There are these wacky, weird things that live in your shoes and only eat strawberry bootlaces. <laughs> I would read that, though. Yeah. But they are not. Great. They're hunks of flesh. Oh, the new children's book coming from Bread and Thread. If you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to subscribe on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash bread and thread. Patreon rewards include instructional videos, recipes, and access to a Discord server where you can discuss crafts and food. So I think I remember rightly that uh, the person that originally published this in like the 1300s 
got the permission of the royal physician. Yep. That's it. Which like, is really cool because you have this concept that we are bringing back now that was very big for like most of human history, I guess, really, of food as medicine. Especially when you look at the the spices in it and you look at the four humours, you have things like mustard as a cure for colds and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's medieval clean eating, basically. Yeah, it's interesting how that's a big a big trend um, at the moment, especially with like superfoods and things. Are there any recipes in the book that that are medicinal? I don't think there's anything that that's specifically said to be medicinal, is there? Just because. I can't think of anything. It seems it's to be... basically just a list of instructions. Yeah. Well, it's not like cookbooks we have now where like each recipe has a little story. Yeah, basically, um, there's a good chance that because of the way books are put together, this might have, you might just end up with the book in the same binding as um, some kind of medical text. Uh, but Wait, so did people used to put multiple books together into one bigger thing? Yeah, yeah, you could do that. Uh, it's very that's convenient. Yeah, it's very frequently done. Um, so that's DIY almanac. Basically, yeah. I I think that the way I like to think of the medieval um, manus- the pr- reproduction of manuscripts and the dissemination of manuscripts is sort of like a do-it-yourself encyclopedia. You might you might have some scraps of of Pliny, possibly, but because um, information was so disparate, you'd you'd be grabbing recipe books, you'd be grabbing bits and pieces, and you'd really have to assemble it however you could. So, thing about the sort of medieval concept of food as sort of inherently good or not good and all these different things. Yeah. Am I right in thinking, just from what I've read about the form of curie, that it does actually contain like raw fruit and vegetables, which is really weird for the time? I believe so, yeah. It was actual salads. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how modern some of it seems, really. It's you don't think of salad at a feast. No. Because you don't want friends with salad. <laughs> and also the whole medieval thing of, hey, if you eat this raw fruit, you'll die. Yeah. I think I like to give credit where it's due. You know, generally trying to not eat raw stuff. A good plan they got overzealous with. Mm. Um, and I, th- I think that... Another another thing that I think is impressive is talking to physicians. Um, it's almost like a bit of legal protection to say, it's all right, I've checked, you probably won't die. Um, <laughs> and considering we have medieval kings that died from like <laughs> eating too much lamprey and stuff, it's probably not the worst idea. Yeah, I mean, that's probably a concern. Not Richard II, <laughs> but, for but a lot of kings of his line died because they ate some bad stuff. 
I feel like that was a fairly common occupational hazard yes. in the Middle Ages. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you drink some bad water once you're gone. Yeah. So. This is why right. everyone had beer. Yeah, pretty. We, w- we will do a different episode on, on beer and small beer and all that stuff. Oh, absolutely. Not so. Yeah, we absolutely should. Um, so is there is there much foreign influence in the recipes? Like, I guess in terms of ingredients, you would expect in a, a royal court there would be exotic ones, but um, yeah, the recipes are the recipes themselves kind of representative of what most British people would have eaten, or are they a lot more? I'd say more, more internationally influenced? because when we say internationally influenced in this period, are we talking nicked from people we fought with? Yeah, broad, broadly, like when we talk, like what we talked about in the jam episode. Yes, broadly Eurasian, um, and yeah, it's basically basically you will get um, nutmeg and things like that, as I said before. Um, so you're you're starting to get a little bit of a broader broader array of things um, because at this point this is this is post Norman invasion you've got a, a big connection to the mainland there um, and you've had by this point uh, continued Arabic influence through. Um, through, say, Spain and through uh, Sicily as well. Oh, was, was Sicily a big centre? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm only really aware of Sicily under the Romans. In the, in the previous century, during what's... Um, yeah, in the previous couple of centuries, Sicily was quite important um, as, a, as a hub of trade and culture. So, I guess it's got that like good spot in the med between everything. Yeah, there was a king, I believe in the twelfth century. Um, I think it was Frederick the Second, who was like, who would have these um, Frederick the of of Sicily. Okay. Um, I believe he'd have birds of prey imported from Finland because he wants to go hunting and hunting and from hawking. Finland. I believe there was some kind of connection with Finland. I may be remembering it wrong, but what I'm trying to get across is there's a whole lot of, of trade links opening up quite widely. So I feel the former Curie is really representative of that, of being able to, at least if you're a noble, if you're the king, of getting quite a wide variety while other people are eating the same turnip. So my question from that is, yeah. what's the weirdest meat in the form of curry? There's got to be some wild. Well, you've got whale, crane, curlew, heroin, heroin, no, heroin, <laughs> seal. They were pre-heroin. And <laughs> So... I think I was talking about encyclopedias earlier. That's basically, yeah. Um, 
I feel like those are some status foods. I mean, who yeah, would want to eat a heron unless it was to show on up? a couple of those birds? It's basically you're getting a natural history yeah. course. <laughs> Level courses. Like Charles Darwin. <laughs> yeah. He ate pretty much everything that he came across. Yeah, didn't they like take on board several and like yeah. none of them made it back because they just lot. ate them? So we know what the weirdest meats are, but what's just the most spectacular thing? Because I mean, this is the era of you skin the peacock, you cook the peacock, you put the skin back on to serve it kind of deals. Did they have any sort of centerpieces and showstoppers? But one thing I found interesting is you'd get actual kind of sculptures brought out of of things. Uh, yeah, essentially. I'm not sure how much of it would actually be edible, but probably about as edible as candy corn. Um, it's kind of like those amazing showpiece cakes today that are like half made Ooh, of foam. Yeah. But I guess they even more extravagant because sugar in the 14th century. Because I'm, I'm assuming that <laughs> yeah. these were sort of sparkly sugar sculptures. Yeah, you'd get scenes like um, towers and birds and things like that. As it's basically a way to announce, "Hey, guess what? The banquet's coming. Everyone, sit down. If you don't care." There's going to be a bit of dinner theatre. Check this night. I made it from some off cheese. This I'm guessing priest... off cheese is not an actual one. No. But this some... priest, also a candle. <laughs> I've read about some of the banquets at royal courts just going on for hours and hours. So presumably this was also... Food yeah, as a form of entertainment. <laughs> I feel like that, like, we're definitely going back to the sort of conspicuous consumption, annoying the peasants kind of stuff we were talking about. Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, yeah. if you were a servant in, in this place, and you're just like, oh, well, bring out the sugar castle. Mm-hmm. One single piece of this is sweeter than anything you're going to taste in your entire life. Yep. I mean, do you think people were sort of discussing the personal habits of the royal family and the way they do now? Like when you're reading the papers, like, oh, "Oh, look at what Harry and Meghan did next. Like, uh, have you heard about Richard II and his gigantic sugar sculpture? We know that this what our taxes are going about to about the royal family at this point. We have the receipts, mm. by which I mean letters and journals, <laughs> mostly letters at this period. But excellent. I think there's a couple of journals. What I do like is, yeah, how you get several things for like uh, pies and and potages. Uh, which Passage is basically a thick, like thick oaty stew, right? Yeah, like a savory. That's what you think of when you think of medieval food is like pies and stews, mm. and then like big thing of meat, whole pig or something. Um, so you, you get that, but then you get 
some very like some pheasants and partridges. You need to speak louder towards the microphone. I'm speaking really loudly. Maybe not. You keep going really quiet. Oh wait, I'm inside my own head, that's why I think it's loud. Um so you get you end up with towards the end of it, you get things that sound really disgusting, but partly because of the language. Um Crusters of fish. Crusted? What's the crusted? <laughs> oh, that sounds like what happens to a custard after you leave I'm it for a few days in the back like of the fridge. on crew, but then you just sort of leave it out for a couple of weeks and it turns into crusted. Yeah. Oh. Turns out it is like a pie, but it just sounds so bad. So it's like it's it's been crusted. It is a crusted. Yes. You can have. You can maybe have some uh, <sighs> some Lombard mustard alongside your fish crusted. I mean, the thing is, now that I know it's just a fishy pie with some mustard, like. I'm kind of into it. Yeah, like that sounds fine. I'd, I'd eat that. I want to serve one of those at a dinner party. Like, are you ready, everyone? <laughs> We're having crusted. I, w- I want to announce it at a banquet, <laughs> though. It's like, bring out the crusted. <laughs> With trumpets. Oh. <laughs> May I now present. <laughs> The crusted. <laughs> Do you think you'd have a decorative crusted with like fancy pastry shapes? Maybe you would. Yeah, oh, yeah there I would want, be many. I'm crusted. really curious who the Heston Blumenthal of crusteds would be. <laughs> a nice foamy crusted to start your day off. That makes me uncomfortable in a way I cannot I mean, describe. He did that series. I treat you right, to that is a word that you chew it on flesh day at this kind of... Excuse me? Chew it on flesh day. I mean, I do enjoy chew it. Yeah. Are they like the strawberry ones? Or like the green ones that no one eats but they're my favourite I feel like this is a different chew it, not, not the delicious chewy sweets dream. that we all remember well, from our childhood. Um... I can't <laughs> too easily um, work out what's being said here, um, but it does seem from this description that they like to move it, move it. Well, that was a reference to an advert that stopped playing about 10, 15 years ago. Yep. Yep, it was. <laughs> The best pop culture references on this podcast. It's like a Catholic thing. There's so many days when you're not allowed to eat like just normal meat. If flesh day is, you can eat this on the meaty days. Yeah, is that is there a lot of fish recipes? Because if I remember rightly, yeah, fish wasn't considered. Yeah, to get around meat. that. Like there was this one monastery in France that decided. Beetle rabbits counted because they're in water. I think a lot of people 
Oh. No, but that's like, not Venus water. is more legit than fetal rabbits, but neither is a fish. Hmm. And neither is something you'd particularly want to you eat. You say that. Beaver guns were used as artificial vanilla flavouring for a very long time. I'm very curious what they would have made of the patch. Crested. <laughs> Beaver crusted. I mean, a, a platypus would count as a fish if a beaver does. So you can make a nice fish crusted out of a platypus. Is that one of us has to make a crusted now in the interests of entertainment? I mean, Nick does make a very good short crust. Here's my one skill. I nominate Nick. Next time we get a food shop in, we'll have to get some sort of fish and crusted it. Maybe, maybe next time I will crusted the fish. Is there any particular way the recipes are arranged? Is it like the modern kind of three courses that we would eat, or it's... is it just all Since all we didn't in together? Have the concept of serving food in courses with them, did they? It was no, just kind of put the best stuff by the posh people, and everyone grabs stuff. Yeah, basically, it's um, just like going to to a buffet with a strict caste system. Like sweet yeah. and savoury at the same fountain. time. Broken. Chocolate fountain's always broken. Oh. Yeah. I found out a fun fact about um, modern recreations. Oh, go on. So the cafe at the John Rylands, um, mentioned the cafe is very good, by the way. They do the best scones in Manchester, I swear. Yeah. And one thing that's been that was nice on a cold winter's day They'd always have some kind of stew. There'd just be a stew in the day, you have some crusty bread. Very medieval. Yeah, it's great. In 2009, they cooked hmm. a tart in Yimba Day, compassed, pain puff, frumenty, and gingerbread, accompanied by piment or spiced wine. I mean, the last two of them, Ooh. gingerbread and spiced wine. That's, that's the crazy market. It is, yeah. I, I would be scared of eating not the other stuff. I'm going to find out what frumenty is. Okay, a porridge. It sounds like someone's very posh made nant. Auntie <laughs> from in the country and rides horses. Oh, frumenty. Um, could often be <laughs> served um, with porridge. Porpoise. So, but what is it? Yeah, I, I said it's a it's a porridge. Okay, porpoise porridge. Yeah, uh, cracked wheat, boiled oil, milk or broth. And if you wanted to get fancy about it, you could put in some currants and almonds and saffron. So that'd be fancy as anything. Yeah. Actually, doesn't sound too bad, but I would skip Maybe the have porpoise. Maybe some curlew instead. 
I'd have I'd have pull post once. I would. I would have pull voice. <laughs> oh. <laughs> My. No, I mean, I'd I'd try it, but there wasn't any pull voice in little last time I was there. I think... If there was going to be a shop that would have it, it would be in like the random aisle. It's not a meat to mess around with, though. You've got to be purposeful. <laughs> I just want to mine. <laughs> well, you're, you're being a smart one on this, so I have to do it. Oh, yeah. Oh. Playing against Titan. <laughs> so, at the risk of just going on forever, I feel like we should maybe call it there. Yeah. Um, there's so much more I want to know about That's fine. This food. is just one of the cookbooks. Um, there's definitely going to be more. Mm -hmm. So, we hope so, you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to suggest an episode or a strange local food for us to talk about, you can email us at breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com. You can also tweet at us at and if you bread and thread us, we on do Twitter. have a Patreon. Um, you can donate at one, five, and ten Ooh. pound, dollar, insert currency here, um, amounts, and get access to the Bread and Thread Discord server, to recipes and instructional videos. First one of which I believe has just gone up. It's how to make your own drop spindle um, using things that you have around so your you house. you can find that at patreon.com slash bread and thread. And we will see you next time.